Perfect. All right, guys. Let's pray one more time. Just ask the Lord to bless our time together, okay? Let's pray. Father, Lord, we come before you now again. We, we're, so, we're so excited, Lord, just to be in your house. I know I am, Lord. My heart, I've, I've been looking forward to coming to church and just seeing my, my brothers and sisters and, and just being in the congregation of the righteous and, and being in your house to praise you, to sing praises to your name, Lord, and to magnify you, Lord, as we worship you in word and in song and, in, and through the fellowship of the church, Lord. We, ju- we just pray, God, that today it would be a very powerful means of grace for our souls, Lord. We ask that you'd help us now. Give us a mind to understand your word, Lord. Reveal yourself to us in your holy scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Wonderful. Well, okay, so we are back. Um, the sub- Plenty of room right up front. Don't be shy. Um, a little bit of room up front here. I know how everybody loves those seats. Um, so we're back to uh, our discussion of biblical theology, and um, we, we're going uh, very slow here on these initial uh, lessons, only because I think it's important for us to really truly grasp the concept of what we are talking about. And if you remember, what we're doing is we're working uh, through... Um, Biblical theology as defined by uh, Gerhardus Voss. And uh, Gerhardus Voss wrote a book called Biblical Theology, and he wrote that, oh boy, way back in, I think it's written in the 40s or something like that. Um, so it's, it's been a while, um, but what he uh, gave, gave us in that book is still extremely useful, ex- extremely relevant, and a lot of modern biblical theology is based on what Gerhardus Voss did there. So we're working through his definition, and remember that he defined biblical theology this way. He said, biblical theology, rightly defined, is nothing else than the exhibition of the organic progress of supernatural revelation in its historic continuity and multiformity. You see why we gotta have like several classes on this, <laughs> right? Because that definition, it's like you can't write it down quick enough. Uh, what I did is I, <coughs> I took the definition and kind of broke it up into the discernible parts. And so when Voss talks about the exhibition, I talked about what, uh, what we call the display of biblical theology, and that is that God is desiring to show forth this this uh, story, this organic history of the Bible uh, in successive historical events and in historical epics throughout Scripture, uh, whether you're talking about the creation account, whether you're talking about the, the account of the flood, the patriarchal history, whether you're talking about the Exodus, whether you're talking about the, the eschatology of the prophets, the kingdom, the dynasty, whatever you're talking about, wherever you are in the Bible, realize that you are in an epic. You are in a time period of history that God has chosen to reveal to us for uh, the overarching purpose of showing us how the Bible is unfolding and why. Uh, Why is it uh, that the Bible uh, goes from such a primitive history to a full-blown dynasty, right? And, uh, And why is it that when you get to that dynasty, a lot of what's in the, the dynasty passages, let's say the Kings, the Chronicles, the, the Samuels, right? Why is it that a lot of what's in there actually are allusions to the creation account, right? And that's because of our next point, and that is that what is known as the progress of biblical theology, um, which, uh, you know, Voss defined it as the organic progress of supernatural revelation. 
And the reason why you see um, Genesis 1 and 2, what's known as protology, right? That's the, uh, just like eschatology, protology. So why you see pro- echoes of protology is because the Bible has an organic continuity to it. It manifests in organic character. That is what, um, that is what, it's, uh, what, it's, what it's saying, and that's, that's what it's all about. So uh, let's, let's jump into this. When we talk about the, org- the organic progress of supernatural revelation, what we're talking about is that God has chosen to reveal himself through word and through deed. I guess there's, there's no better way of saying that other than, than the fact that what we have in the Bible is a series of of uh, events that are revelatory. So what happened uh, in the Exodus is a revelatory event. The event itself, the historical event itself, is revelatory in nature, is revealing something to us about God. So what we could uh, uh, talk about the deeds, right, and the words of supernatural revelation. Uh, that, that is what we're getting uh, in biblical theology. We're stringing together these two concepts. And the reason why uh, this is so important right here is because realize <clears throat> that God did not give us supernatural revelation in, in one point in time, right? He didn't reveal it to us uh, punctiliarly, <laughs> one point in time that defines everything. Instead, he reveals it to us in successive events, one after another, and all of those events have an organic continuity, one with each other. And that's, that's very important. So, um, and the other thing is this, is that it also means that God's revelation comes to us progressively, which means that there is, a, there is an initial primitive revelation, right, that is progressive in nature until you reach, right, some sort of climax, okay? Um, we did this last week, and I think we can do this again, but you can see this, for example, in the seed theology of the Bible, right? We have the initial promise of the seed, which is Genesis, what is it? 315, right, the first gospel, and then you have various stages of fulfillment of the seed theology. So we go from the initial seed, and then we go to, let's say, uh, the epic of Noah, and so we are meant to understand how does the promise of Genesis 315, how does that tether together with what happens at the account of Noah? See, what happens is a lot of times we'll take the account of Noah and we'll say, well, this is a great story about God's deliverance and about how God judged the world, right? But, but really, it is that. But really, the author of Scripture, the Pentateuch, I think is written in such a way that he, Moses wants us to trace this promise in all of these successive stages. So after Noah, you have, let's say, Abraham, right? And then we have an advancement of the seed, Right, so turn to Genesis chapter twelve again. Right, you have so many, um, you have so many uh, places where this the seed theology advances, um, but this is a big one because what it reveals to us about the the theology of the seed is that in fact um, this theology is 
it has different features. It's, um, it has different, it, it, the nature of this initial promise has different characteristics. So for example, number one, it, it is redemptive, or it is what we, we, we could even call covenantal. Because the seed theology then is picked up in the covenant that is given to Abraham. And, and that, that, that means that what God is doing in this initial primitive promise is then taken covenantally, applied to the rest of the Bible. And, uh, and therefore, it also tells us that that seed theology is uh, messianic. Uh, so in chapter 12 of Genesis, right, we get this this amazing promise of what it is that God is going to be doing here with his, and when we say seed, uh, there are two things that we need to understand about the promise of the seed. I mean, this is just one theme of the Bible that we can develop. We can develop the theme of the kingdom, the theme of the new creation. We could develop uh, the theme of, of Adam. We can develop all these different themes, okay? But we're gonna, the theme of the sanctuary, the theme of the temple, uh, just to show you some of the crucial themes that we are going to look at, but this is just one. So understand that the seed has both a, uh, what we can say, a patriarchal, uh, right? It has a patriarchal fulfillment, and it also has a messianic fulfillment, right? And so on a patriarchal level, the seed, if you look at what's, what's basically uh, promised here, uh, God says to Abraham, go, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. So right there and then, we have the promise of what? We have the promise of land. You see that? So there is a land promise that is made there. Now, when you think about the land, what land is he talking about? Israel. Israel. Any other Old Testament ways that we think of the land? What it's referred to? Canaan. The land is flowing with milk and honey. <laughs> That's right. So what I'm saying is that on a patriarchal level, what the land is referring to is, an, is, a, is a literal, physical, geographical location that is centered in Canaan, right? But on a messianic level, what we find is that the land is actually typological of something even greater, something even more vast than a literal physical geographical location just in the boundaries of Israel, right? Which is a very small, somebody said Israel is about as big as, uh, what now? I think maybe New Jersey or something. No, 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 maybe that's not right. Uh, something like that. Yeah, it's, it's tiny. It's this tiny little place. Well, I mean, think about it. I mean, is, is, the, is, is the, the whole uh, humanity that God has saved throughout all of the ages, the millions, according to Revelation, the innumerable number of saints, are we all going to be standing <laughs> in the confines of Israel? You know? I mean, talk about population problem, you know. <clears throat> uh, I don't think that's w- what it means, and, and, and there's evidence. So, Real quick, Mike, before I get to you, uh, turn to, uh, 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 oh boy, no, that's not the one I wanted. I think it's Jeremiah. Turn with me to Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 32, just to show you maybe a possibility of how this land promise is ultimately and, uh, and finally going to be conceived, uh, restored in the Negev. Yes, I think it is Jeremiah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jeremiah 32, and I'll get there in a second, verse 36. Mike, did you have a question real quick before I go here? That's right. That's where we're going. Yeah. yeah, that's where we're going. And what I'm saying is that already in the Old Testament itself, right, it's not just that New Testament believers arbitrarily just decide, oh, that applies to the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22, right? But what I'm saying is that as you move up in the stages of redemptive history, you have the typological, you have the typological warrant to interpret the, the physical land promises along a messianic level that, get, that leads us to the new heavens and the new earth, okay? And so, for example, Jeremiah 32, beginning in verse, oh boy, I suppose we can do 38. Let's go jump down to 38. You guys remember this uh, slogan here, right? Because it's throughout the whole Bible, um, you find the slogan over and over and over. It's this covenantal pledge that God makes to his people. It says, they shall be my people, I will be their God. That phrase is found all the way from Genesis to Revelation, showing us the covenantal continuity of the whole Bible, right? That, that, is, the, that is the apex, that's the climax, that's the high point of it all. I will be their people, they will, uh, I, I will be their God, they will be my people. You see that? Uh, that's what's so important. So look at, look at what goes on here. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them and I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they, may, that they will not turn away from me. By the way, when he says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them, what covenant is he referring to? Anyone? The new covenant. Because this is Jeremiah. This is not talking about the Mosaic covenant. He's in the Mosaic covenant, right? So the everlasting covenant is talking about a future time in redemptive history when God will make a new covenant with his people. So this is, you know... Uh, this is right after, mind you, uh, Jeremiah 31, 31, where the whole new covenant has been already explained. And so by this point, it is through the new covenant that these things will happen. And now watch this. I will, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart, with all my soul. You see that there? So there you have the imagery of the land promise. Because, because, you know, when Jeremiah speaks of planting them in the land, he is talking to them about Canaan. Well, where does that land promise initially come in? We just saw it. Genesis chapter 12. I will give them this land, right? And so you see how the land promises go from literal, physical, geographical, historical importance to messianic, typological, prophetic, you know, significance, fulfillment, right? Questions? Anything? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. He's the center of it all, right? He's the climax. That's why we have the, you know, the TEC conference. It's our effort to try to 
worship over that very truth, right? It's all about him. That's why Paul says in Colossians, we proclaim him. I determined to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. See, he is the, he's the climax of it all. Did you have something, Marlene? No? Oh, oh it's Chris, sorry. <laughs> it's Chris. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So when we talk about the seed, what we're talk some some of what's implied when the Bible talks about the seed in Genesis chapter three is the the creation of a new humanity. Ladies, you know we just went through this in my book, Convert from Adam to Christ. God's effort to to create a new humanity in Christ. Who is why would God do that? Well, because Christ is the new what? He is the new Adam. And so from him flows a new humanity. <laughs> it's beautiful. When I first got this, I thought, wow, this is amazing. No wonder God is doing what he's doing in China, in Africa, in the farthest resource corners of the world that we don't even know what's going on. But God is working there, his, his kingdom. I'll tell you what, if you want to know what God's doing on planet Earth, turn off the television and open up Operation World. O- open up some missionary uh, uh, handbook that is going to explain to you what is going on evangelically among the unreached people groups of the world. God is not, you know, Donald Trump is not what God is doing in the world. <laughs> no, the media probably thinks, he probably thinks that. <laughs> you know he thinks that he's the center of all God's attainment. <laughs> but that is not what God is doing. God is creating for himself a new humanity as he promised in Christ, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So do we have warrant to, 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 to look at the Bible as an organic whole, as an organic unity? Uh, what are some of the adverse effects if we do not look at the Bible organically connected, organically progressing? Does anybody, can anybody tell me what are some of the adverse effects of that? Yes, sir? Oh, wow, that's a big one. That's big. I mean, uh, that is essentially the dispensational error originally, right, from the, uh, the, school, the school of Schofield and Darby, is that some of those dispensational expressions went so far as to say that you're saved in different ways depending on what period of time you lived in in redemptive history. So there's no organic unity as far as the gospel, and that's very important because... Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Are you sure that didn't come from an enemy of dispensationalism? <laughs> what, what, okay, so what is another adverse effects of not seeing it that way? Yes, ma'am? It's what now? Arminianism. I, I think Marlene just wants to take a shot at Arminianism. <laughs> but you know what? She's actually onto something. Because if you're saved in different ways, Marlene, you know, I remember somebody said, uh, I think it was Robert Morey who talked about um, Francis Schaeffer's inconsistent soteriology. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, famous apologist of the 20th century, who said that, you know, Schaeffer was an Armenian in the old, but a Calvinist in the new. 
you know, because he saw these radical dispensational breakup of the Bible. The entire Bible doesn't apply to you. The entire Bible. Oh, if, yeah, that's right. That's right. If you don't have a, you know, if you don't have this, and especially this, the historical unity of the Bible, if you don't have this organic progression of supernatural revelation, then you may be tempted that, you know, three-fourths of your Bible doesn't apply to you, the Old Testament. You know what I mean? I mean, think about how sad that is. What we're saying is, you know, I, I marvel, don't you, sometimes I just marvel at how small the New Testament is. I mean, there it is. I mean, here's the Old Testament, here's the New Testament, right? And what we're saying is that this is really not that relevant for you. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> right? So, I mean, we believe all Scripture is Christian Scripture, right? A, a controversial statement, but I think it's true. That's right. That's right. And actually, when it comes to Hebrews, a really interesting thing um, that, that to note in Hebrews is there's a couple things to think about here. There are some that would say Hebrew doesn't apply to you because of maybe dispensational reasons. And there are some that would say Hebrews um, in the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, that whole prophecy, that doesn't fully apply to you either now. And uh, that tends to be more of a Presbyterian approach to the New Covenant. Uh, what they're saying is that the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 9, is actually talking about the future. I will put a new heart within them. I'll write my laws in their heart, right? Um, all of that. They will no longer turn away from me, right? All of those promises, they're saying, are yet futurely fulfilled. So, so it's, uh, you know, we're, 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 I think we're right in the zone. You know what I mean? We're right where we're, right we're supposed to be, you know what I mean? Um, any other statements, comments, nothing? On this, right? Yes, sir. Three and four in the morning. Is that a? Co- I mean, wow! You you were you must have been at work. If we put Christ here, okay, these stages of this, of the seed, we're looking at the seed. You could call this the promise, right? Uh, there's different ways we can look at that. Now, because I'm going to ask you to turn to uh, Acts chapter 7, we can say if we take it from here, from Abraham, and if we do the timeline from Abraham to Christ, then we have Acts chapter 7. Because that's what Stephen does. So let's go there real quick. Uh, Acts chapter 7. This is very important. This is fascinating. Um, I'll tell you something uh, that I thought was, um, that was remarkable. And I was quite surprised. Um, you guys tell me if you find something. But I looked everywhere. I looked in every biblical theology textbook that I own. I looked on the internet. I, I, I looked everywhere. I searched high and low for a biblical theology of Acts 7. And what I mean by that is Stephen is doing biblical theology before our very eyes. Why hasn't anybody written like extensively on this? Graham Goldsworthy, where he, Goldsworthy says that, what, that, that this is masterful what Stephen is doing, but he gives like five sentences to it. That's it. I'm thinking, 
do you know how long Acts 7 is? <laughs> like, this is such a huge chapter, right? Um, what I want to say is that for Stephen, he reminds us that, <clears throat> that, that, that Revelation is, in fact, organically progressing. And we could even add a, a, another element in there. It is organically progressing along a Christological timeline or, or right, a, a Christological plane. In other words, we know the Christ-centeredness of the Bible, right? But Stephen, in order to, in order to uh, uh, prove that Jesus was the Christ, no, notice what he does. He goes back to Abraham. And so let's look at this very quickly here. Um, if, you go to, if you go to chapter 7, verse 2, he begins right there. He says, he says, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And then um, he says that God told him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So he begins right there. Now look with me to verse 52. Verse, these are the bookends. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, right? So this is where he's going. From that initial theophany of God, according to Stephen, appearing, the, the God of glory appearing to Abraham, he's going to go all the way to the arrival of the righteous one. What I'm saying is that that's the way we need to do theology, right there. <laughs> we, need to, we need to preach out of Genesis, teach out of Genesis, study out of Genesis, always with an understanding that this whole thing is going to the arrival of the righteous one. And it's all announcing the arrival of the righteous one. What else does Stephen talk about? Just follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to try to just give us... Um, a very quick summation of what's going on here. If you look at, uh, if you look at uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 22 through 7, what we can say is that this is when God's covenant glory was revealed to Abraham, uh, to the epics, and then from there to the epics of the patriarchs, verses 8 to 16, shows how the patriarchs ultimately leading into the 12 tribes and how they ended up in Egyptian captivity. Right, um, And then from there, Moses and the Exodus, verses 17 to 44, right? And then from there, he goes to Joshua, chapter 7, verse 45, which, which you see what he's done there. Uh, here, let me, let, let me not stop there. I, I almost messed up my whole thing. Hold on a second here. Let's keep going, okay? Because after that, verse 45 to 46, he goes to David. And from David, verse 47 to 50, okay, he goes to Solomon, right? Um, and then finally, verses 51 and 52, uh, by referring to the prophecy, prophesying, we could even say, of the prophets, what we can say, we can summarize that as him talking about the eschatology of the prophets. So what, what Stephen did here is so crucial, you guys. Because what I took away from this is this. This is, this, is, this is kind of the takeaway right here, okay? Is that 
as Stephen moves from the patriarchs and he moves to Moses and the Exodus, right? He is looking to move us to Joshua for the purpose of what? Well, why not just skip over Joshua and go straight to uh, David, right? Why not just go from Abraham to David, right? No, no, no. Very important that he mentions Joshua. Why? Because Joshua, above everything, what does Joshua represent? Joshua represents the land. It's how they came into the land, right? And then from there, he moves from Joshua to the, to, he moves from Joshua to David and to Solomon. But what does David, again, um, how much time does he give um, Solomon and David? Not that much, right? He gives them a couple verses each. Verse, uh, verse 45, 46, David. Verse 47 to 50, Solomon. And what I'm saying is that this is all on purpose, right? What comes through David? What's that? King. King. Kingship. Right? Kingdom. Right? So now he introduces the concept of kingdom, right? By telling us about, the, the, about David, right? That dispensation of time. What about Solomon? Why is Solomon important? What does Solomon bring to the table? Temple. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that. Right? So what is Stephen doing? He's taking us from, from the patriarchs, and he's showing us how the land is tethered, the kingdom is tethered, the temple is tethered to Christ. All of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and he also uh, he also brings up the preaching of the prophets, and so and so we can put the prophets here, right? And 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 the prophets are are especially important because what the prophets announced. This is important here. What the prophets signify is this: is the arrival of last days the prophets are announcing the arrival of the last days think about the prophecy of joel the day of the lord right will come like this and so he's announcing that um, in the end times there will be an outpouring of the spirit of god and where did that take place pentecost right and so what do the what does the eschatology of the prophets do it prepares us for the inauguration of what Christ brought. What did Christ bring? I have to move this thing out of the way. See, excuse me. What did Christ bring? Let's put him over here. Let's put this over here. Let's, 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 let's exalt Christ <laughs> and put him over here. What did, what did Christ bring? What Christ brought with him. What arrived in Christ? What arrived in Christ? The kingdom arrived in Christ. What else arrived in Christ? Salvation. Okay. Right? Redemption in Christ. That's a big concept. What else arrived in Christ? 
The fulfillment of what? Okay, the fulfillment of the promise, right? Right? You see, what Christ does is he ties everything together. What else arrived in Christ? I'll tell you what arrived in Christ. The temple, right? What did Jesus say in John chapter 2? What is it? Go ahead, go ahead. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days, right? And, and, and what was he saying by that? You guys understand how serious it is for somebody to stand up and say, destroy the temple? <laughs> I mean, that'll get you killed. It did get him killed. You know what I mean? They trumped up charges again because you destroy the temple, you destroy the entire religious way of life up until that point. So what Jesus is saying is, in essence, we know what he's saying is that by his coming, by his life, death, burial, and resurrection, the center of religious worship has been changed from a, geogra a mainly geographical concept, from an architectural concept, right, to a spiritual, redemptive, salvific, Christological concept. He is the end time temple. He is the arrival of it. He is, he is the fulfillment of what the whole temple symbolized. And, and you guys know that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, sir. What correlation? Yeah, so you, you're correlating the lands of Joshua, kingdom to David, temple to Solomon, last day to prophet. Oh, for Abraham? Um, yeah, I mean, for Abraham, I would just, you know, obviously the seed, the promise, the covenant of Abraham, right? <coughs> the new humanity, the new nation, you know, all of that. Even though it has a patriarchal fulfillment, because you read so much of your Old Testament and you actually see literally people moving to a literal physical land. They actually inherit the land, right? You actually see literal physical posterity, what's known as fecundity, a great posterity, right? You see, the, you see um, partial fulfillments of that, right? There's no question there's a literal physical fulfillment of that. But the messianic aspect is what's really important because all of that is just typological of what happens in Christ ultimately, right? Um, I've heard it said that what God is doing is he is, what God is doing is he's trying to gather for himself uh, in, a, in, a, in a covenant bond, right? Because, uh, you know, in covenantal times, there's nothing more intimate than a covenant relationship, Right? You see that through the covenant God made with, no, with Abraham, right? Uh, 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 you know, splitting of the animals, right? Laying the animal parts down, and God is in essence saying, let it be to me, you know, as those animals were, were torn asunder, let that happen to me if I break my covenant, right? So this is the closest, most intimate relationship imaginable that you can, this is a bond that you forge of the highest order, Right? And so what God is trying to do in all of this is what he's trying to do is he's trying to dwell with a holy people, 
in a holy realm, right? In a covenant communion bond. I, I believe that. I think that's exactly. And then when you get to Revelation 21, it's not hard for us to see that's exactly what happens, <laughs> right? God creates a whole new creation. Uh, I was in South Lake visiting, visiting some, a brother, uh, a friend of mine, and um, um, they put up a new fountain. I've, you know, I was just looking around because I haven't been down there in a long time and whatnot, <laughs> and I looked around. They, they did this new fountain, and these, these fountains, they have the most amazing lights. I mean, it literally makes the fountain water look like crystal. I, I mean, I can't even describe it to you. It's, it's just amazing. It's like a dazzling, you almost can't take your eyes off of it. And it reminded me of the, of, of the, uh, the sea of glass and the crystal shore that the new heavens and the new, or the new earth talk about. And I just started, I just started fantasizing about what it's going to be like to walk down the crystal shore and to look over the sea of glass. You know, amazing, amazing. I will be in a holy realm, right? And I will be holy myself. And I will be in a holy covenant bond with God. It, it will be remarkable. Why do you think God's making a sea of glass? The Bible says there'll be no sea, but Revelation, the new creation, says there's a sea of glass. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Correct, 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 correct. Yeah, the sea in the Old Testament, that's why Job talks so much about the sea in a negative way, right? That it represents mystery and darkness and, and it represents a threat. You know what I mean? Back then, the own ancient sailors, they were afraid of the ocean because they didn't know what was under there. <laughs> you know, even today, the ocean is terrifying, right? To be out there in the middle of the deep. So what you see is no more... Um, What's the first, okay, what's the first time that you see the sea mentioned in the Bible? Genesis 1, and what's going on there? The Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep, right? And, 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 and the world is tohu bavohu. It is formless and void. Is that a positive thing or a negative thing? That is a negative thing, right? It's kind of a, a Hebrew way of speaking of chaos. The Spirit of God hovering over the chaotic waters of the primal uh, creation that, is, that, that God is going to bring to order. That's what's going on in the new creation. God is taking his creation out of the primal chaos from which it stemmed, right? And he's making a new creation where, where no longer will you have tohu bavohu. There will be no more formless. There will be no more void. Everything will be as a sea of glass. It will be clear and trans trans transparent and beautiful. And uh, there will nothing in the new creation will, will symbolize chaos. That's just amazing. I mean, think how chaotic our world is, you know. Um, okay, we have some more work to do here. Uh, Acts chapter seven, 7 again. Um, I skipped over this on purpose because I didn't want to steal my own thunder, but if you look at, if you look at this, this is amazing verse right here. Look, look, look at this verse, 717. This is amazing. But as the time of the promise was approaching, 
which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. That's, a, that's an amazing verse. I, I, I want you to go home and look up a commentary. Look, look up someone that has maybe preached on this verse and really dive into that verse a little bit because that's a huge one. Because one of the things that it tells us is that this is this is kind of a, to me this is sort of a um, this is kind of like being able to peer into redemptive history right you're looking into redemptive history here right as history is progressing and what you're seeing is that underlining if you would if you go behind the scene what is moving history forward and why right God is moving it forward. God is orchestrating all of these redemptive events that are taking, taking place. Why? What is his motive? His motive is, to, his motive is the progression of the promise. You see that? God, so, 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 so what does that tell us as far as Galatians chapter 4? Right? Galatians chapter 4, you know this verse, beginning in verse 4. Galatians chapter 4 Beginning in verse 4, Paul tells us, but when the fullness of the time came. Same idea. When things were getting ripe, <laughs> right? It's almost like as if there was a, as almost, it's as if things were coming to a swell, right? Things were ripening. Things were getting ready, right? And God acts. Boom, right? So because what was going on with the 12 tribes and the history of how they, you know, how they, they were to develop and grow and the, the nation, the great nation that would come out of that. The promise was on its way, but this is what's amazing. You would think that as the promise drew near, some sort of salvific event is coming, <laughs> right? But instead, what happens? The people go to Egypt, <laughs> They go into captivity. It's like, wait a minute, Lord, you're trying to fulfill the promise, <laughs> and then the next step is that you send your people into Egypt for 400 years of slavery? Right? Why is that? It's because the Exodus event is a symbol, a type of redemption. It is that God was going to give us a historical picture, a type of the redemption that he is going to bring about in order to fulfill the promise. It's just amazing. It's amazing when you start getting into this and you start, what kind of deacon was this guy? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, okay, I got to talk to my deacons today. Because <laughs> Stephen is like, this is a jam-packed sermon, you know? And, and, and it's not fair because you're not inspired, I know, but <laughs> you, don't have, you don't have the inspiration of the Spirit. But I'm thinking, okay, one thing is for certain, guys, okay, and this is, a, uh, this is for all of us, okay, that, that, that Stephen uh, is, you know, Acts chapter 7 is not Stephen sitting at a desk writing a dissertation. What's the scene? He's about to be martyred. And on the brink of his martyrdom, from memory, Stephen recalls the entire history of redemption leading up to Christ. Wow! Right? So what is he saying? So, so if you look, uh, 
If you look with me, for example, um, at the end of Stephen's sermon, at the end of Stephen's uh, sermon here, I think it is important. You look at verse 51. And I think the way that I would phrase this, if you look at Acts chapter and at 51 here, what does he say? What, what is the conviction, right? What is the conviction? Um, he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your hearts, he says, and your heart and ears are always resisting what? The Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one, what's the proof of what his fathers did? Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? You think of Jeremiah chapter, t- chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 19 and following. And what do you find there? You find God telling Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I'm going to call you to this. And the priests and the kings and the princes and everybody will resist you. Right? So this, this is what he's talking about, right? Which one of the prophets that your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. And so what I'm saying is this, that at the end of the day, um, what Stephen is saying is that the people of Israel, this is their great sin. It can be described in this way, that they were not moving in step with what the Spirit was doing redemptively, historically in Christ. They were walking in contradiction to what the Spirit was doing in redemptive history. They were going backwards, right? They weren't going in step with the Spirit. Just like Paul tells, you know, Peter, you're not in step with the gospel. They're not in step with the gospel. They're not in step with what God is doing in, his, in redemptive history. I thought that that was just, a, just, an amazing, um, just an amazing little thing there, but I think that's so good. Um, uh, let's see here. How much time we got? Okay. Um, notice that language there. The announcing and the coming of the righteous one. Right? Um, as a matter of fact, if you look at Matthew 11, verse 3, uh, that's a verse. Y'all can go there and look at it. Somebody can read it for us. But Matthew eleven three, Luke chapter 7, verse 19, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, and a slew of other verses refer to Jesus as Ha-archimenon. The, he, the Greek phrase ha-archimenon is a participial, actually a substantival participle that means the coming one. That is a messianic title of Jesus, the coming one. It's so beautiful. When I thought, I was like, wow, I'm going to write a book on, I want to write a book on biblical theology and title it the coming one, <laughs> right? Because by the time we get to the coming one, what the authors of Scripture understand is that all of this has happened. And when Matthew 11 and other places are announcing the coming one, they know that the coming one is a result of this, right? They understand what is coming. What is coming is the fulfillment, what we said, fulfill, the fulfillment of all of these glorious things in Christ. Isn't it amazing that for us, it's as simple as God wrapping all of this together. Like Mike said, he wraps all this land and all this um, history and everything, he wraps it all up for us in a person, right? I think that's just so amazing to me. Um, that Jesus is the fulfillment of it all, right? I mean, that's, that's why I love uh, biblical theology so much is because at every step, at every step, it is 
Christocentric theology that we're looking at. It is just another, it's just another aspect, it's just another vantage point, another angle at which you are looking at the work of Christ. You're looking at the person and work of Christ. And it doesn't matter where you are in what stage of redemptive history, I'm telling you that it is tethered to Christ. Right? It changes everything. I mean, you read Ezekiel 40 to 48. That's some of the most daunting passages in all the Bible. It's about the, it's about the end time temple. And God gives Ezekiel a vision of how this temple is going to be rebuilt. Okay? And you think, what in the world can I possibly benefit <laughs> from those eight chapters, right? The dimensions and all the details and the vision and everything. And what I'm saying is that Christ makes it simple for us. That it's through Christ, through his new humanity, through the new heavens, the new earth, the end time temple will be realized that God himself in a sense will be our temple it's just amazing that's um I know I'm out of time I'm out of time um (coughs) I leave you with this short quote and this is a quote um oh man I didn't even get to that that's so huge Okay, I'll show it to you. Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, just real quick, just real quick. This is like a drive-by. This is a drive-by theology right here. <laughs> Todd Friel would be proud, right? Another way that we can see how, um, how Christ is the culmination is um, if we focus on the idea of new creation, how Christ is sort of uh, inaugurating, bringing about a new creation, we are reminded of this by the genealogies of the Bible, of the New Testament. For example, uh, if you go to, uh, you stay in Matthew 1, but I'm just going to mention, if you go to Luke chapter 3, verse 38, uh, Luke gives us the genealogies that go all the way from Joseph back to Adam. For what purpose? Because Adam, in Luke 3, is called the Son of God. Okay? You think they're trying to get our attention about something, right? <laughs> the new Adam is here. <laughs> the, a new Son of God has come, right? That connects us back to the idea of new creation. So really quick, if you go to Matthew 1, verse 1, real simple. It says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, and then it goes on. Do you know, um, <coughs> in Greek, When it says, the record of the genealogy, that phrase right there, the literal Greek phrase is biblos geneseos. Geneseos is the Greek for the word genesis. So what it's saying is, this is the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. There's only two other places where this phrase is found in the Septuagint. And it is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, genealogies are given there. What it says here, these are the, this, <coughs> it, says thi- it says this is the Biblos Geneseos of the, of, the, uh, of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations of the heavens of the er- and the earth. And then the only other place where it's mentioned in the entire Bible, Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where it talks about this is the book of the generation of the man, Adam, and how that leads us forward to his posterity, namely Seth, 
right? So only two places where that Greek phrase is found. The next time in Revelation where that phrase appears is Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genesis of Jesus Christ, right? So what is Matthew trying to do? He's trying to tell us this is the beginning of a new humanity. This is the beginning of a new creation. That's what he's saying. This is a new genesis has come in Christ. So that's it. That's my little nugget as we, as we leave here. But um, I, thought it was ama- I thought that's amazing. That's ama- I, I get really excited about stuff like that. Um, any questions, comments, statements? Yes, sir? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, uh, one of the things I'm doing is, you know, as I'm looking way ahead, when things pop into my mind, I just kind of go to my documents and I start expanding this lesson that we're doing here, right? And right now it's like 30 pages long so far, you know, it's like turning into a book here, you know. <clears throat> but one of the things I did was is I went to, okay, um, in terms of the creation account, what is the biblical theology of the creation account? Well, there might be one or two things that people mention, but a lot of times, and I think for us as Christians, <coughs> what we've learned, I'm having a Hillary Clinton moment over here. <laughs> Have you guys seen that? She can't stop coughing. Yeah. That's horrible. <laughs> I feel so bad for her. Anyway, kind of. <coughs> um, yeah, I know. I feel like I'm going to, but... I just was going through Genesis 1 and the creation account, and I started thinking about everything that it talks about there, and, and really what it boils down to is, Lord, I don't know your word well enough. Because I start going through the creation account, the creation of the days, <coughs> the, the, the creation of the animals, the birds, the plants, all of that. And you know what I've been taught as a Christian? I don't know if you guys can resonate with this, but what I've been taught is that, oh, this is for disproving evolution. Right? I mean, that's how we use Genesis, to disprove evolution, right? And I thought, no, no, it's, I mean, it does that. I believe it does do that. But no, no, it's not for disproving evolution. It's for proving Christ, right? And so, we're, Lord willing, we are going to look at the creation account and build a biblical theology of Christ from the creation account, from the days of creation. It's there, and it's amazing. So anyway, I made us all late. So let's go. Let's go to let's go to let's go to worship.